Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast again. On this episode, we're going to be talking about anime episodes 116 through 118, which will be covering manga chapters 187 through 193. So Sanji's got his hands full dealing with Mr. Two, now being able to transform into Nami, while Nami has to actually learn how to use her new weapon quickly to survive against Miss Doublefinger. So that's pretty much the synopsis. It's basically, it boils down to the conclusion of Sanji versus Mr. Two as he tries to figure out a way to defeat Mr. Two despite his ability to transform into Nami, while Nami herself has to quickly learn how to use the new weapon developed by Usopp, the climb attack for her battle against Miss Doublefinger. So as far as differences go, there are a couple minor ones sprinkled in amongst these episodes. Like during the tail end of the fight between Sanji and Mr. Two, there are a few extra hits and moves inserted in rapid succession just before they've performed their finishers to kind of extend the scene a little bit so the episode fills the entire half an hour runtime. Also, in Nami's little flashback of when she requests the claim attack or climb attack, uh, there is an addition of Luffy and Chopper sort of messing around in the background, which is not present in the manga. I think this was just to make the scene a little bit more interesting, I guess, which I don't feel like was necessary. And then there are some scene rearrangements like the Pluton conversation being moved from after the conclusion of Nami's fight. It's moved a bit up further to be the cliffhanger for episode 117. Alright, well, on to the episodes themselves. We last left off where Mr. Two has figured out Sanji's weakness of being unable to hit women, and he's completely exploited this by transforming into Nami and has beaten Sanji down pretty badly. I think of the more underrated but funny jokes here is when Sanji's eyes turn into hearts and they pop out of his eyes. <laughs> However, Mr. Two karate chops the heart eye, and Sanji recoils at this and says, <laughs> My eye! As if the heart eyes wasn't just a comic book effect, it was his actual eyes physically having the ability to turn into literal hearts and bulge out of his head, which is absurd. But I love how it's played off almost kind of seriously as you can literally see, especially in the manga, you can see Mr. Two physically chop the heart and then Sanji's just like covering his face going, my eyes. Um... There are other ridiculous comic book gags that make no physical sense here, like Mr. Two being able to peel off his mascara makeup and using them as like razor-sharp boomerangs, a la Batman's batterings, which is also pretty funny in and of itself, too. And I, we also have to give it up to Akemi Okumura's voice acting here for her ability to do Nami's voice, but talking in that absurd mannerism that Mr. Two has. It's, it's pretty amazing how she does that. But then we cut back to Vivi and Chaka as they prepare to blow up the palace. In this scene, we see Vivi still hasn't quite gotten over her worrying ways, but shows she's grown quite a bit since the whole saga started and meeting the Straw Hats. And even though she's worried for their safety, she doesn't let that get to her as she trusts them now and their strength to survive. And then after this scene, <laughs> to sort of juxtapose that, or to reinforce her, that after we get an update on Usopp and Chopper, and this scene is just pure hilarity as Chopper has treated Usopp and he's all bandaged up like a complete mummy because he's sustained so much damage and injuries, which is appropriate for the desert setting. Then there's the laundry list of ailments and injuries Usopp has sustained, which is funny, but the one that gets me all the time is the your blood pressure is zombie grade, <laughs> which is... It's pretty it's pretty funny and genius writing. 
We also get a call back to the heavenly beautiful flower fields joke from Drum Island as Usopp again is on the doorstep of death and sees the, the beautiful flower fields calling to him <laughs> to heaven. And then Usopp wakes back up after the brink of death once Chopper confesses that he had been hiding some manjuban. <laughs> I don't know where this joke comes from because it's not really referenced anywhere and it's just literally this one random thing where apparently Chopper has been taking manju buns and he stole the last one from Usopp. Then finally completing the round table, we see Nami is still being chased by Mr. One and Miss Doublefinger. And epically, Zoro comes in out of nowhere to save Nami. And Mr. One, as we learn, is what his devil fruit is finally. It is the Spuspanami or the Dice Dice Fruit. Which is an insanely cool fruit, I gotta admit. He can turn his entire body into steel blades. And also, fun fact, spuspa is the Japanese onomatopoeia for cutting something very cleanly. So, you know, when you slice through something, it's just like spot. Um, Zoro mocks Mr. One and Baroque works, goading Mr. One into attacking him instead. But that leaves his hands full and no longer able to protect Nami. She has to run away from Miss Doublefinger. And we get a call back to Whiskey Peak and a bit more details about when Baroque Works tried to recruit Zoro. And Miss Doublefinger and Mr. One are actually very familiar with this event. So this duel has finally paired off as well as Zoro is set to take on Mr. One and Miss Doublefinger goes after Nami, setting them both up for their 1v1s. While these scenes are all really good on their own, one thing that's always bothered me about these big arcs with multiple storylines and multiple characters to follow is that we often have to jump back and forth between them all, which doesn't leave much time to really enjoy a particular scene or interaction. Sometimes I just want to see an entire scene play out in its entirety without it being cut away from. For example, here, I just want to watch Mr. Two and Sanji just their fight play out in one long sequence instead of cutting in and out to see what the other characters are up to. I do understand it's kind of necessary and it's a necessary evil, but it's still frustrating at times. Like, I either want to see the whole fight between Zoro and Mr. One or see what happens with Nami and Miss Doublefinger or finish the previous fight with Mr. Two and Sanji. But, you know, we have to keep cutting back and forth to sort of make sure that no one set of stories gets too far ahead of the other ones. Because obviously in a medium like any medium, like TV shows, movies, comics, you can't show two simultaneous things happening at the same time without sort of distorting the sense of flow of time. Anyways, jumping back to the fight, finally, Sanji figures out Mr. Two's weakness to his fruit that in order to use his powerful ballet Kempo attacks, he needs to momentarily change back into his real body to perform the attacks. And Sanji uses this fact to counterattack at the very moment that he's about to unleash a ballet Kempo attack. This is also another exchange I always laugh at when Sanji explains this to Mr. Two and he just poorly pretends like he didn't hear anything like, what? I couldn't hear you. And Sanji just looks at him and says, looks like I was right on the money (laughs) and just stares at him. After a bit more back and forth, Sanji does defeat Mr. Two with a new set of attacks culminating in a new signature move called the Vol Shot. It's a cool finisher, but I have no idea how it works. This scene is made out to be a fake out to make it look like Sanji loses, but obviously it's a delayed hit. And somehow Mr. Two is launched back through some vortex force? Like, I don't understand what caused this. Did Sanji just kick the air so hard he caused this weird air pocket vortex right in Mr. Two's gut? (laughs) This is one of those weird One Piece techniques that I can't even begin to explain, even in the context of the crazy physics in the world of One Piece. (laughs) 
And I, I do like the way this fight ends with them kind of leaving on friendly terms in the vein of two warriors finding respect in each other until Sanji decides to comically get one last kick in to get Usopp's goggles back. It's interesting though that going back to his appearance, Mr. Two has gotten along pretty well with many of the Straw Hats and it looks like Mr. Two may not be all bad. With two crew fights in the books going the Straw Hats way, we return to Vivi and the Royal Army preparing the castle's demolition, but Crocodile all of a sudden shows up at the palace to prevent this and to tell Vivi that he has killed Luffy. Crocodile has now entered the battlefield, which is crazy. I think one thing that's becoming common here is just the belief that no matter what happens, the people closest to the Straw Hats and the Straw Hats themselves always believe that Luffy will return to the fight. We saw it in Arlong Park when Luffy was drowning in the water and everyone still believed that Luffy was still alive and would come back no matter what. And here, awesomely, we see the same thing with Vivi as even though she sees Crocodile right in front of her with no sign of Luffy and it would be logical to conclude that Luffy had lost and what Crocodile says is most likely true to her but Vivi refuses to accept that and continues to believe in Luffy. Of course we'll see more and more of this in the rest of the series and I honestly never grow tired of it and I wanna, I'll probably mention a little bit uh, in the spoiler section about this sort of concept. Next, we move on to the third fight, Nami versus Miss Doublefinger. This has to be another one of my favorite fights, which is a pretty common thing about the Alabasta arc. I love all the fights, as this is Nami's big debut as a combatant, but this fight is so damn funny and entertaining, yet also dramatic, tense, and emotional. It really is a big growth moment for Nami as she faces an enemy that is far stronger than she is, with a devil fruit power no less. And it also shows off a different type of combat from the others in One Piece as because she doesn't rely on physical prowess, Nami's strength comes from her intelligence, creativity, ingenuity, and her meteorologic knowledge. It's a very unique fight. And it starts off with a flashback in which Nami goes to Usopp to ask him somehow make her a weapon that would allow her to be useful in a fight. Not just so that she won't be a dead weight in a fight, but because she really wants to help Vivi in this coming battle. Even though Nami often acts scared and runs from fights and leaves it to the monster trio, we see that Nami does truly want to be part of the crew in all aspects, not just the navigator. And she desires to also get stronger to keep up with the rest of the crew. And Usopp being the sort of the mechanical genius and good guy he promises to make her a new weapon but obviously we'll come to find that he puts his own little spin on it in the worst and best ways possible like i said this fight is one of my favorites to watch as it's so damn funny and so many jokes peppered in as the running joke between nami being weak and scared but most of all the new weapon the climb attack comes with some very useless functions built into it the running joke is that in the instructions Usopp included for Nami, they're mostly related to party tricks, and so every time Nami tries to throw out, throw out what she thinks is an attack, turns out to be some ineffective trick. Each time it's built up to be this epic and explosive attack, but it's just Nami and Miss Doublefinger standing there frozen with the next shot Nami pissed or depressed, and Miss Doublefinger feeling sorry for or embarrassed for Nami. My personal favorite of these is the Thunder Tempo, as it's the third one that she throws out and you think, okay, third one is the charm. It's going to be a real attack and it looks all flashy and powerful and it turns out to be this toy boxing glove puncher. But the part I love the most about this is that it just sits there for a bit with the glove bobbing up and down and then after like a couple seconds, Miss Doublefinger just kind of swats it out of the way like, pasha. Also, on a completely irrelevant note, 
Another example of techniques that make no sense is can we talk about where the live pigeon was hiding in Nami's claim attack? Like, seriously, that's a live pigeon and that comes out of the staff. And we see Nami repeatedly choking, but also carrying the pigeon. So where was it hiding? It it doesn't look like it's small enough to fit in the little tubing of of the climatact pole. It's just like another thing that just doesn't make any sense, but you don't really question it. After running a bit more, Nami finally notices on the back of the piece of paper of the instructions is a whole other set of instructions specifically made for combat. And Nami's face and exasperation at the revelation here is incredible. However, what gets me is that even in the combat section, Usopp is still noting how some of these attacks could still be really fun in a party setting. And Nami's just so pissed at this point. However, in all her frustration and clumsiness, Nami begins to understand how this weapon might actually be used and realizes how this weapon specifically in her hands could be very powerful. One thing this fight also really showcases is just how unique and special of a character Nami is. The way she uses the weather to fight, even though she lacks strength and often is cowardly and runs away like Usopp, when it counts, she does also muster up the courage and stand her ground to fight. And while the fights with Luffy, Zoro, Sanji are cool, I think fights that involve Nami and Usopp have this sort of added layer of tension and emotion because you never know exactly how their fights will end up. This is also the first time we see Nami actually take quite a beating, sustaining multiple stab wounds, then pretty vicious ones too, due to Miss Double Fingers, Toge Toge no Mi, or Spike Spike Fruit. And she even decides to sacrifice her foot a bit to try and get the final attack off. You're often left wondering how Nami is actually going to take her out because you don't know the full extent of what the climb attack can do and also just sort of the overwhelming nature of Miss Doublefinger's Devil Fruit. Aside from being funny as hell to watch, the party trick gag serves as a great tool in the context of the story as well, in addition to being kind of a great narrative payoff. Because first off, in the story, it lowers her opponent's guard as it makes the opponent underestimate Nami. But for us from a story perspective, it makes the final attack of the tornado tempo twist reveal so much more impactful it builds to this moment where you think nami has got this and unleashes the final attack but it fires out uh, two wind-up pigeons and to nami and our horrified shock that it's another party trick but then wait it starts to violently wrap themselves around miss double finger and then blast her with enough force to blow her through two stone walls knocking her out completely resulting in Nami's first 1v1 victory. And I mean, what an awesome fight. Like, this was, yeah, this conclusion was such a cool moment for Nami, and I I love it, and I honestly cannot wait to see Nami in more fights like this. Also, on a completely weird, random fun fact, the charge-up noise for the Tornado Tempo is no surprise for longtime Dragon Ball Z fans, as it's the exact same sound as the Super Saiyan transformation. <laughs> It's like good old Toei, again, reusing assets from old shows. But anyways, I mean, what can I say? Not only was this a great fight, you're just kind of proud of Nami for defeating an opponent this strong. I mean, we've followed these characters for so long now, and I feel like I've grown such an attachment to them. You kind of feel their accomplishments and their failures on a deeper level, and it's pretty cool. You know, we're close to 120 episodes now. And I know in the context of the entire run of One Piece, that's like small change. But I mean, when you look at it in isolation, 100 plus episodes is a long time still. And you really do feel it with with Nami's victory. 
Now, I left this part at, for the very end just because I didn't want to in- interrupt talking about Nami's fight, but intercut within Nami's fight is the subplot with Vivi and Crocodile as we finally get a much better understanding of why he specifically targeted Alabasta, and it's to find the whereabouts of an ancient super weapon called the Pluton. It's capable of wiping out an entire island in one shot. In order to find that, he's looking for something called the Poneglyph, which Cobra seems to be the only person who understands what Crocodile is actually talking about. And this is a confusing and intriguing twist introduced late into the third act of an arc, but it makes sense that someone like Crocodile isn't only after taking over a country based on everything we know about him, and it confirms many of the foreshadows we've seen up till now that there was more to this plan than he was letting on. He's not just some power-hungry guy who wanted to control a country, but he's more so after the entire world and to take on the world government. But in order to do that, he needs this super weapon called the Pluton. Also, can we talk about just how gruesome and painful that must be the way Crocodile has Cobra strung up with the stake stabbed him to his, like, elbows, pinning him to the wall in that weird, uncomfortable position? Like, ouchie. But to end, we get a tease of the final 1v1 fight remaining, which is the Zoro and Mr. One, which we'll talk about on the next episode. But yeah, as the Straw Hats versus the Baroque Works crew battles rages on, we get we got two more awesome fights with Sanji and Nami. However, we still have one more with Zoro and Mr. One, which we'll cover. I know I haven't talked about the new opening, Hikari, yet, but because, like I mentioned last episode, it's got some major spoilers in it that I'm going to push it to the spoiler section. But if you enjoyed this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast for updates. And stay tuned for the spoiler section. Like I mentioned, I want to talk about the new opening as well as the Pluton and a few other little tidbits. But yeah, if not, thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, spoiler section. Well, first off, we got a new opening here, opening number three. It's a, finally we got a new opening after what believe I mean I believe lasted a long time, but in episode one sixteen we get a new one, and I really like this opening. You know, it's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely a good song. You know, if you listen to my you know rankings, I had it at number fourteen, which is kind of low, but you know it's a good song. It's a it's a nice like um rock song like pop rock song with a really high tempo and an upbeat feel to it the animation that accompanies it is great you know it's got these beautiful fully animated scenes the whole way through of the crew sailing through the sea and yeah i really like it but there's one major problem with this opening it's more so not the opening itself but the timing of it it's just i don't understand why they decided to do this moment to release this opening because it features Robin basically part of the crew and this is not supposed to happen for like another 15 episodes and this is a really huge review or reveal and yeah I I don't I don't understand why they why they did this because anyone who's an anime only watcher at the time or even now for that matter you watch this opening without really knowing and all of a sudden, you're just wondering, what the heck is Robin doing with the crew? Like, is she part of the crew now? 
<laughs> does she survive? Because later on, you know, you see you see her get stabbed in 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 that confrontation with Crocodile, and so during that portion of the story, for like those like three episodes, you don't know if she's gonna survive that moment either. But like the opening is like, okay, so she's there, uh, so she's definitely gonna survive. And so it ruins a lot of these like tense moments with con- concerning Robin and the rest of the story, and and you're just I, I don't know I was just baffled at the time why they did this. Um, I, I you know it didn't bother me per se because obviously I was already a manga reader at the time, so I knew this was coming. But it's just such a weird thing to do. Like I think this is easily the most egregious spoiler they've thrown into any of the openings. I don't understand why they didn't just like. I, I mean, I guess I know why it's for money and time, but you know how some of the openings have like several different versions with different scenes switch swapped out. I don't understand why they didn't just swap out some of the scenes with Robin and then add her in later when she joined. But yeah, it's really weird and kind of unfortunate. So we finally get the reveal of the ancient weapons and the poneglyphs. And so with the Pluton, obviously, we don't actually get to see the Pluton here. It's the first time it's ever mentioned. But we learn that in addition to the original weapon itself, there were schematics for the weapon to reproduce more Plutons, which we eventually find out came into the hands of Tom and then eventually passed down to his disciple, Kati Flam, or Frankie. And we we also know that once we get to the Enneas lobby, that Frankie decides to burn the plans and destroy them. But we do know that the original Pluton is still somewhere out there. But it's pretty crazy that we got this, the whole idea of these ancient weapons with the first one with Pluton. And then we obviously learn about Poseidon, you know, with Shirahoshi. And then there is a third one called Uranus, but we don't know anything about Uranus yet, which is interesting how that the fact that we're so far into the story, yet we still don't know what Uranus is and how it will play into the story. But, you know, in Alabasta, we already started this new subplot of the ancient weapons, which kind of permeates through the rest of the entire series. Obviously, I'll talk more about this when we get to their respective moments with NES Lobby and Water 7, with the Pluton, and then also in Fishman Island with Poseidon. But I honestly don't know how... I how Pluton will actually play into the main story. I have a pretty good idea about how Poseidon will play into the story, or at least I have very like rough theories, but I don't really know what Pluton will actually do. I also want to mention the Climatact and Nami's fighting style, and just I love how it evolved from this point on, just seeing her sort of incorporate more and more of her weather talent into her attacks and seeing her use the climb attack as well as Uso upgrading it further and you know with the dials that she gets from Skypea and then her learning more and more techniques from uh, the two-year time skip in Witheria and yeah and then eventually now to utilizing Zeus and stealing Zeus from Big Mom although you know obviously in chapter what is it 10 13 or 10 12 we still don't know the fate of Zeus but yeah it is I mean I have to think that Nami will regain Zeus and she'll become or Zeus will become a very powerful part of Nami's sort of arsenal but it's just really cool to see from here Nami's how it's evolved and not only that but in in their most recent chapter with 
ten, uh, you know, uh, or not the most recent, but in ten twelve, I believe, with Nami, actually we get a return in Wano of the Tornado Temple for the first time since this very episode, and it's really cool to see how the Tornado Temple has kind of evolved, and it's really strong now. And I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't actually land, and Ulti dodges it, but. I mean, it still looks really cool. And finally, you know, kind of bringing the whole story back full circle to at least where, you know, where we're at at the story right now at chapter 1014, you know, just the the whole idea of Luffy, just his mere presence brings hope. And you see that conversation that, that Kaido has about how it's interesting how Luffy just kind of instills hope when there should be none just by the mere presence of him and we see that here for the first you know for the first time in in a sort of a big climactic setting where just the fact that even though luffy's not on the battlefield just the fact that there is a chance that luffy is still alive and doing his thing he will come back and and that hope that everybody seems to place in him is a very annoying thing for the villains in one piece whether you know whether it be down the line with with NL and whether it be with Anius Lobby and Dress Rosa, all of those things, like just the fact that everybody around him, whenever they come into contact with Luffy, they all instantly want to like root for him. And no matter what happens to him, they always believe in him and will fight tooth and nail just to make sure that Luffy gets back to the battlefield, even though he gets knocked down. And, you know, with the most recent chapter, Luffy has definitely been knocked down. And we don't know what's going to happen, but we know for for a fact that no matter what Kaido says, he will be back and everybody will fight until he does. And I think that's cool. We see that we see the beginnings of that here. I mean, actually, we saw the beginnings of that earlier in the series, but I think this is the first time we see sort of that more large scale um, approach to it. But yeah, so that is this episode. Um, thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.